It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. So I've been talking with Timothy a little bit today, getting to know him and saving a lot of my big questions for the recording. And the first one is, there's a big theme around yellow. So for those that are not looking at the visual of our talk today, and maybe haven't seen the cover of your book, which has this beautiful yellow heart on it, and you're, is that technically a yellow shirt? It's darker in color than the heart. (laughs) It's close here. I have the book here. It's off. It's like orangey. Actually, the book that you just held, it looks almost like, what's the term? Like a highlighter yellow to me. Yeah, yeah. Fluorescent. Yeah. 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 What is the symbolism there? Is that on purpose or is that just a coincidence? No, it's definitely on purpose. I think for a while, like even on my website, I'm an artist, I'm a designer, I'm an illustrator. My portfolio website, I use yellow as the accent color. And I think generally that's kind of come from the fact that So much of the artwork I do, I do lots of wall murals and I do lots of brand collaborations with my art. I do lots of just art all over the place. And it's generally, not always, but I would say 70% of the time it's black and white. And it's black drawing on a white background or vice versa. And I would say that like anytime using yellow really complements the black and white drawings a lot. So I think I've kind of always tried to like, I sway towards that with my personal work. And so, but with the book, I always think it's forever. It's like yellow is just such a symbol of like hope. And my book is this entire journey of one year of my life of going to Paris and having this brief but intense love affair with this woman and all the stages of falling in love and attraction and all the stages of grief of the breakup and going through me dealing with all kinds of like childhood traumas and figuring out my attachment disorders with breakups and relationships and then coming back out at the end of the book with hope and healing. It just feels like, yes, the yellow is just like the symbol of healing and hope for me. So I think that's, it was a conscious decision, of course. Like I tried other things. I wrote and designed and created every piece of every square inch of this book. So there was a lot of like, in the design process, in the art process, there was a lot of kind of trying to exhausting possibilities of different colors and stuff, but we just kept coming back to yellow because of the hope. That's so cool. Because in my head, not being an artist in that traditional sense of what you're doing, meaning like, I guess, Many of us have artistry in our lives and creativity is is a very core component of the human experience, but mm-hmm. I don't consider myself an artist like you. So I don't know, think about things like that, that even to ask a question. Do you consider yourself creative though? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I wonder do. wonder what's the difference sometimes between... Between artistry and creativity? Yeah. Or why we might say I'm creative, but I'm not an artist. I don't know. It's interesting. I think we're all born artists. Have you always thought of yourself as an artist? No, I guess not because I thought, so I went to school for graphic design and then I started my career 
as a kind of a more traditional graphic designer. I was a book jacket designer for the first year out of school at Simon & Schuster, which is wild that they published this book, my graphic memoir. So it's like this complete like full circle. But, and then I worked in branding and I was an art director and I went to Apple and this all happened like the first three or four years of my career. But once I started working for myself, which now it's been 12 years I've been working for myself since 2011. And I was still, even when I started doing more, I was doing lots of wall murals and I was doing all these kind of like, I didn't really ever call myself an artist. And then it wasn't until I started realizing like my grandma would call me an artist. And I started realizing at some point the lines got blurry for me because I was creating so much personal work. And at this point, I now write books. I have art gallery shows. I do work for myself on the streets of New York all the time. And yes, I also do lots of commercial work. But I started realizing like regular day people that aren't in those graphic design world, like they don't think of a difference of like, it's like, no, you're an artist. And it's like, you got to get over yourself. I think coming from the design world, like you think it's pretentious to say I'm an artist or something, but it's not like, yes, I'm an artist. And I was an artist when I was a kid. I used to draw Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles all day. And that's what it is. And it's okay to call yourself an artist. If you work on a craft, if you make something and put it in this world, you're an artist. I like that. It's funny how in my head, I think of creativity different as being an artist. Like artist seems like a job or Mm. a skill set. But finding the art throughout life is a good like thought exercise. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm curious to jump to the Paris story, but I also think it'd be great to start back as you as a kid, like Mm. how your work as an artist evolved over time. Like just kids tend to enjoy drawing. Maybe not all children, but it's funny when you look at pictures that kids create and how they don't look very good to us as adults, you know, (laughs) they're not the right proportions, like the colors are outside the lines. And then as we grow up, we're kind of taught to like, make it look a certain way. What were your drawings like when you were a kid? My drawings were, I have some hung up actually in my house. I love them. I love just like honoring that child version of myself and I thought they're cool. I think kids' drawings are really cool. They're so innocent. Didn't Picasso say something like, oh, I've worked my whole life to draw like a kid or something, or like a five-year-old? It's that rawness, that innocence before some adult tells you that you're not an artist or that it's not good. We lose. It's tough. How do you preserve not just that kid in you, that artist, but just the little child inside of all of us that loses its innocence? I'm always trying to find that little boy and salute him, honor him, hold him. So yeah, I was always making art when I was a kid. My grandmother is an artist. She's a ceramicist. She's a painter. She's a writer. She was always, everything was very artful for her. Even she would make these homemade jams and she would make these labels and she would handwrite the labels in her beautiful penmanship. And she had these journals. She would travel and she would keep these wild journals with like drawings and all these entries and they were all beautiful, like penmanship and photos and stuff. She was always very artistic in so many ways. It just makes me think that like nothing is possible without making time for it. So it's like, how do you, I don't know. It's like these side projects that doesn't have to be a podcast or a book. It could be a garden. It could be 
cooking. It could be so many different things that could be your like quote unquote side project. You know, for me, it was about learning French or trying to learn French and going to Paris and doing something for myself that I never did before. And that's what this book is about. Just that was a moment in my adult life where I was like, whoa, how do I do something just for me finally? And yeah, I don't know. I'm rambling a little bit, but. I like the rambling. <laughs> there's room, As we <laughs> talked about before, there's so much room for that on this show. And yeah. I think like the rambling in itself is part of the creative process. Even that in itself, for me, I feel like that was kind of peer pressured out of me or like something about society pressured me to not ramble. And as an adult, now I'm realizing why not? And Mm -hmm. this podcast has actually given me the freedom, the format that I have now is a very creative format versus some podcasts I see that are very structured and they're tight Mm -hmm. and they're concise and everything's kind of framed differently. For me, the show has been an opportunity to let go a bit and even to give the guests permission. And I noticed, Mm. as you and I talked about before we started recording, a lot of guests come to a podcast thinking they can't ramble. They can't go on tangents. They have to do a certain way. And it's like, what if we just allowed ourselves to play in that and see what we can discover? Yeah, for sure. And giving yourself that creative permission. Yeah, no, for sure. One thing that came up as you were talking about childhood and speaking of the show, Mm -hmm. as I said to you, the aim is to go deep and not superficial. And one thing Mm -hmm. that you've brought up in your book, you talk about very publicly, but I also want to be mindful of any boundaries around this where you use Mm -hmm. the term childhood trauma. Yeah. And if you're open to exploring that on the show, given everything that you just shared about your childhood what role did that childhood trauma play and did that impact your artistry? Mm, Yeah, of course. I mean, for me, I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. And so I didn't meet my biological father until the first time until like six or seven years ago as an adult. And so he was out of the picture and I had a stepfather that my mom married when I was like four or five. They got divorced when I was like maybe 12 or 13. We didn't have a lot of money. I grew up in an all black neighborhood. I have a lot of fond memories of the neighborhood of my friends, of uncles, my grandparents, and my mother. My stepfather was pretty awful in a lot of ways. He was physically abusive. He was verbally abusive. He just wasn't a father, and I was always looking for one. And then he was out of the picture. And as a teenager, I kind of didn't know what to do with all this kind of like angst I had and all this like uncertainty. Like there was a lot of like financial instability as well growing up. Like there were times I would see things I shouldn't see. My mother like sneaking all the money she has to her name in my closet because she and my stepfather are getting into this another like awful argument and her thinking that we're going to have to skip get out of there at any moment or something. So when you see this chaos, when you see all this as a kid, as a little boy, you start to blame yourself, I think. You're confused and you also start to associate like love or a relationship as a shortcoming filled with inevitable heartbreak and pain. And when you see two adults in the house growing up who aren't communicating with love to each other, who are screaming at each other, there's drugs in the house, there's, like I said, financial instability. You're seeing all this as a kid. And yeah, you equate love with these shortcomings. You think that. And then I think as a teenager and as a young adult, then I started to like 
build an armor so that I could like protect myself from that, but not say, obviously I didn't have the language or the wherewithal to think about how that might affect me. So I just start to like either look for love or relationships in all the wrong places with the wrong kind of people, or I push people who are good for me away because I don't have the emotional capacity to deal with love or a relationship in any significant way, meaningful way. So you fall into this vicious cycle, I think. And I think a lot of people in this country, in this world, come from certain kinds of backgrounds like this. Specifically men, I think, in this country, we talk about what it means, out, like what toxic masculinity means. And I think it's the way, especially the way coming out of a broken home in this way, or dealing with even being able to admit that you were abused is almost impossible, I think, on so many levels for men. And so, yeah, you grow up and you're socialized and you build armor. And I think that's what I did for a long time. And thank God for many years of therapy, I'm cured 100%. No, I'm kidding. But <laughs> I've continued to be proactive about my mental health and about... So really, it's like something I've learned in therapy on that childhood trauma is like, it's really like an old athletic injury. You think about it like that. It's like, so a breakup, a heartbreak hits me a little bit different than maybe someone else who came from a more loving background because it's like you have that old injury and you hit your knee on the side of a table and then it's like, you're fuck, like what? Like it's like, and it's the same way with a breakup with my heart in a way because I have an attachment disorder and I've had something called abandonment depression. And so the way I kind of deal with a breakup Sometimes I have to like gaslight my brain because I like, I think I need to tell myself a narrative in order to get over it, or I need to villainize someone or whatever. And so this breakup in the book was really the first time that I was able to recognize the pattern happening again during this breakup, but able to like put a stick in the spoke and like stop the wheel a little bit. And really work and really kind of come back to all this shit that I dealt with as a kid and like really start to reframe the dialogue I was having with myself and finally, finally show up for myself and like heal in a much larger way. And so, yeah. Wow, that's so cool. I mean, the subjects that you're touching upon show the importance of a book like yours because. It's interesting. I will never know what it's like to be a man. I'm a cisgendered woman. Yeah. I am straight. Like I've had a lot of relationships with men, but it still feels like I'm in the dark. You know, we were sharing yeah. some of these things that you can see how perhaps the way that we're raised, the way that we're treated by society, the, of course, the cliche things about how men aren't allowed to cry or men aren't allowed to show their emotions. And I mean, it seems kind of archaic to me. But it's oh, very sure. real. Yeah, it's very real. And I really hope more men start to understand that you can be masculine. And also, yes, you can be masculine and you could cry. You can be masculine and you can go to therapy. You can be masculine and you can ask for help. You're going to be masculine and you could wear something feminine. You can be masculine and you can, all these things can coexist. And it's really a shame that I still think I so much, so many, I think it's definitely changing in ways, especially with like the mental health aspect, especially as you see more and more like celebrities, for instance, like the Pete Davidson's or the Michael Phelps or these people admitting that they struggle with depression or suicide ideation and that being forthright with that kind of stuff, I think definitely 
plays into the zeitgeist and changes, helps men redefine what they think, how they think about therapy or their mental health or, or just choosing vulnerability over aggression and apathy. And so I think that talking about this stuff as I do on my Instagram for many years, connecting with different people and talking about my struggles with mental health, talking about my struggles with my manhood and all these kind of ways. I, I get lots of DMs from people or men who've told me thank you or women who told me that they've sent my stuff to my work to their boyfriends or their husbands or something. And I hope I can just be another example of what it means to kind of like be, yes, a cishet man in this country who is quote unquote masculine, but also vulnerable and can go there and all these kind of places. And that doesn't make me any less of a quote unquote man. How did you get to that point of even feeling comfortable doing that in a platform like Instagram where so many people seem to be performing? Yeah. It's about the highlight reel. I think that there's a trend of authenticity, vulnerability right now on these platforms, but not everybody gets there. People still even do performative authenticity and it doesn't sound like you're doing that. So how did you get to that place? What was that journey like? I mean, it's always just been a calling for me to really like use my life and use the things I'm going through in my work. I think that in so many ways, like filmmakers and writers Poets and the people have always done this as artists. They use things in their work. And so it doesn't really feel like I've never really struggled with that aspect of things. I kind of see it as the only way to kind of like do things. Now, obviously, I'm a commercial artist and I do a lot of stuff with like brands or whatever. And that's a whole different thing. But even that at this point, I'm starting to like, I'm aligning myself with even like doing things about mental health with brands or whatever. And so it's like anything you build a muscle at it over the years of doing it. But I've always just felt like that's what an artist should be do, should do. And also the community aspect and contributing to Keith Haring is a big inspiration for me. He would say stuff like, I assumed like, after all, the point of an artist was to like communicate and contribute to culture and I have the same assumptions. (laughs) I don't really see any other way. It's just, I'm not just here to like make something look dope and pretty. It's got to be more in a lot of ways. Even if it's not about all this very like difficult subject matter, it just has to like be a celebration of something or has to be a contribution for something, which is also why I think I have made it a point to do other kinds of things with my work, like donate murals to schools or do workshops with kids. And yes, like partner with like people about mental health or manhood and all these kind of things. Like I'm, I'm trying to constantly be at it of service in ways because it just brings me meaning. Like I like to connect to human beings. That's like the point of all of this for me. And that is a good segue into relationships because relationships are all about connection. And that's the core of your book. I'm curious... Did you know you were going to write about your experience in France when you were there or before you even went? How did that evolve? Well, while I was there, I kept a journal and I hadn't done that in a long time just because everything felt so profound when I went there. It just felt like everything just felt really special. And I felt like I was living in a movie. So I just wanted to like capture. I always like to document my life, you know, and I've done. And yes, I've done that in certain ways with old like with projects, I've done like these social experiments over the years and they've come out 
as a package in some way, whether it's like a book or a blog or something, but it's just my nature. I think a lot of things like our behaviors, our natures drive our art. So you just start there. So I just love documenting. So it was a documentation of writing a journal and I'm always constantly writing these vignettes and these poems, no matter what. So I was doing all that, of course, just naturally and taking pictures and all that kind of stuff. But I didn't ever, there was no like, how would I know there would ever be like some love story that would come out of this or whatever, or the heartbreak that would follow. So it wasn't until maybe a year after, not just France, but because I was in France for like six months and then, but the year after the whole thing ended, like the breakup and everything and my kind of journey of trying to heal through the breakup and all the depression I had. So it was like a year later that I really, and this is kind of like in the pandemic or maybe around the time that we were getting like vaccines, I started to like, oh, this story doesn't feel like complete to me or something. Or I even like felt like I didn't have, even though I was like healed and like totally moved on in a way, it still felt like I needed closure in some way just for my like internally. So I was still like, ah, oh, there's like a lot here. Like, and people were really like interested in my whole journey in Paris and my, like all that kind of stuff, like through online and stuff, or just the fact that I would just do this, like what it means to like get up and leave your life and like go to Paris and try to learn French. And, and then, so I was like, ah, oh, what would it mean? Like, could this be a book or something? Like, what would it mean just to like tinker and start to like put together not even like put together a whole book proposal, but like, what would you mean to like start to put together a narrative? Like, how would that even play out? Like, it's my journey or whatever, but like, how would I like package that in some way? So I just started kind of like playing and yeah, and then I just became obsessed. And before I knew it, it was like, I had like created like 50 pages of like what this could look like or become like with my poetry and my journals and all the art and the charts and the graphs all to kind of tell this comprehensive story of this whole year it just felt like I was oh I'm like, I was really excited so I love the format of your book and the artistry in it it really surprised me when I took a look at it and one page that stood out was a reference to sex in the city right like didn't you say in the show sex in the city there's two loves what's the quote yeah like I don't know the exact quote, but the way I wrote it was kind of like, it was kind of like Sex and the City once proclaimed that you only get two great loves in your life. I've had four. Does that mean I'm lucky or I'm doomed? And then I wrote, let me see if I know it by heart. I think great love should be counted the way the Basketball Hall of Fame inducts their nominees. A player must be fully retired for at least four full seasons. So you see, there's no way Amy can be counted as a great love. It just hasn't been that long. And then I go, yes, I just wrote a whole book about our relationship. <laughs> so fast. I mean, those questions are really interesting to ponder because yeah. I haven't thought about it that way. And I think a lot of us wonder about like, do we have just one love? Do we have multiple soulmates? Yeah, are yeah. we going to be with this person for the rest of our lives? Like, <laughs> I think growing up, I thought, oh, yeah, it's very cut and dry. You marry one person, you stay with them for the rest of your life. I mean, my parents are still together. Oh, I wow. grew up with that foundation of they certainly just like any relationship, I see them go through challenges. It's not like it was picture perfect, but yeah. they are still together. And so maybe it was because I had that modeling or I was just watching all this television and movies, you know, the Disney and all these programming that we have about like finding your one true love. 
And it's so refreshing for people to acknowledge like, no, I've had four and maybe I have, well, I have even more. And mm. maybe that is divergent from what the media tells us about love. Yeah, I agree. I think that, I don't know, it's tough. Do we have more than one soulmate? I think so in some way. I'm in a long-term relationship now. My girlfriend Tina lives with me and it's incredible and I've never had a love like this. Does that mean it doesn't exist in some other way? I don't know. I don't want to think. It's a hard question. I think you can find love in all kinds of different ways. And I think we're just different versions of ourselves all the time. We continue to grow and therefore you can continue to meet different kinds of people. And all of this stuff is like geographically based too. It's like, okay, it's like, oh, it's the love of your life, but it's also just like you both just live in the same city or you both ran into each other in whatever event you were. So I don't know. It's hard to know. It is really hard to know. Yeah. And speaking of the media, one other thing that came up as I was looking over your work and connected to Sex and the City, the same creator, I believe it's the creator, Darren Starr, has that show Emily in Paris now. And I'm yeah, curious if yeah. people bring up that show. Do you have thoughts on that show? <laughs> like, Because that show is all about this American girl who goes to Paris and kind of learns French and has all these romantic escapades. Yeah. Almost sounded like your book started like the opposite. Like you went to Paris not expecting to have love, right? And then you did yeah. find it. Am I messing that up in my head? Did you go there thinking? No, not really. This book is really off the heels of like in 2018, I went through a lot of depression and suicide ideation. I was in a really bad place for many different reasons. One of them was about really, it got really existential for me because I came to a place where I just didn't know what I was doing anymore with like, I just realized I'd put putting so much effort towards my career for so long at that point, 10 years or something since I had graduated at that point. And I was just like days and nights and weekends and I was burned out. And I was just like, what the fuck am I doing? Is this really what life's all about? And I also realized it came to fruition that like so much of all the like constant hustling and trying to get become quote unquote successful came from this like desire to like early on this desire to prove all the people back home wrong. I barely graduated high school, couldn't even get into a college. I didn't want to go to college, but couldn't get into college after high school. I was a complete screw up. I had 1.7 GPA in high school, smoked weed every day, did every kind of drug. Wasn't really like, again, that kind of goes back to like, that was the armor I was putting up because of like all the shit in my childhood. And then also like my mom's divorce again and a remarriage. And I was just like tired of it all. And I was just like, I just wanted to lose myself and whatever. And so that's what that was when I was a teenager. And then at some point, when I was like 19, 20, I was painting homes in Cleveland. I was a helper. I was just making like $6 an hour cash, painting houses. I was helping. I was hauling buckets of wallpaper glue upstairs for 15 hours a day. And at some point during the course of that, I had this incredible mentor and he taught me all these things. And I went to start going to community college in Cleveland. Shout out Tri-C, Cuyahoga Community College. And I became obsessed with art, with everything. We're trying to get out of Cleveland. We're trying to make it. I didn't have any money. I had to follow, get all these scholarships. I applied to all these scholarships, eventually got to New York. But then I realized like after being in New York at that point for 15 years, whatever, it was like in 2018, I was like, everything I've done now has just all been in reaction to like trying to prove people wrong and trying to make it or whatever that meant. And, and it was just like, 
what the fuck? Like, it just didn't feel real. So, so I came out of that year, I was in such a good place after all of it, therapy and all these things. And so I vowed to just really go after things and do things the way I, I wanted to do them. And that was big and small. That was about going to Paris. That was about trying to learn French. It was also about just growing my hair or having a birthday party and celebrating New Year's. It was just like showing up for myself and going after things. And so when I went to Paris, it just, I was just open to anything. I was just like, sign me in, you know, like punch in the time clock. Like I'm here, I'm on duty for whatever is going to come. And that's love, that's love. If it's heartbreak, it's heartbreak. It was just all about accepting whatever was going to come my way, saying yes, jumping towards it. Yeah. What a journey that is. Yeah. It's super interesting too. I like, I'm very grateful that you're sharing all of this because just even the shifts, like the childhood trauma you talked about, but also growing up in Cleveland and what life was like there and what school was like and just these hardships and just getting to New York seems like a huge deal. I have family in Cleveland and my cousins, who's a little older than me, just went to New York City for the first time ever. And I just thought New York was only a few hours away from where I grew up. And it was just like, I took it for granted. Like, oh, New York City, it's exciting, but it's just right there. And then to have that perspective shift last year in 2022, that my cousin from Cleveland doesn't leave very often. And some people never leave. So not only did you get to New York, which now I recognize as a big deal, but then you got to Paris, like Talk about a huge jump. (laughs) Was it easy to go from New York to Paris? Or was there still part of you that was like you were growing up in Cleveland where going to Paris felt like this big thing to achieve? No, it kind of felt easy. And I mean, listen, going to a different culture, different country, completely different culture is, is scary for sure. And like, I think that without a doubt, that is scary, but it's exciting. And yeah, like living in New York for so many years, I definitely do feel, I mean, it's such a hard city and a big city and like, there's so much to the city, of course. So I just think that it definitely makes things a little easier. Like I'm not so like green around like going to a different place, but obviously like, and I'd been to Paris a couple of times before I've been very privileged and blessed to be able to travel this world because of my job. I speak at a lot of conferences and creative conferences, and I hired to do murals in different countries and all kinds of stuff. So I've really, so I rarely kind of like feel displaced in a new country. I feel I can be scared or whatever, but I kind of feel excitement behind that scariness, which is always just kind of like the goal, right? I think, especially as a creative person, like to find myself in a place where I'm like, kind of not sure how I feel. Like, I'm kind of scared. I'm kind of excited. And I think like with work, you're making work that kind of brings that out, that feeling in you. That's a really good place to be in. I just read this quote by, I'm a huge Bob Dylan fan. And he said something like, something like an artist must always be in a state of becoming. And as long as you're sort of in that realm, you'll sort of be okay. And yeah, I love that. So Uh (laughs) That's great. And I think it's so helpful, too, because our society kind of positions, at least in my perspective, in the past, I viewed success as like something you could achieve and then you will have made it. But I'm curious to 
given that quote with Bob Dylan, do you ever feel like you're going to make it? Or is it actually important to not feel like you don't make it because that way you can continue being truly artistic and creative? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, it just seems like our society is so centered around like, become successful. As you mentioned, like the hustle and just like burn yourself out. You got to get to this point. But a lot of times you get to that point and realize like, oh, it's not actually that fulfilling. The fulfillment is in the doing of things. Mm. Has that been your experience? So wait, can you say that a different way? I'm trying to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know it's fumbling out. I think it's just this idea that it's a different framework of looking at success because there's so much pressure to be successful. At least I've felt it. Yeah. Have you yeah. felt pressure to be successful? Like all this hustling that you mentioned, is that like a pressure to get somewhere? Only for myself. I mean, I come from a pretty blue collar background in the sense. So I didn't really have pressure. And I didn't have like a father pressuring me or something around and my mom. No, there wasn't like pressure growing up to be quote unquote successful or anything. All of it really came from my own insecurity, I think, at, at early on to kind of like prove people wrong or prove myself right or prove something to myself. or So all of that came from my own doing, I guess. But I mean, I think there is a societal pressure just in general. Do you like, feel more of it now? Like, because I mean, the way I see you is successful mm-hmm. and I wonder, like, if you get to this point where a lot of people in society see you as successful, like through the book and through your work and through working with big brand, I mean, you've accomplished a lot. Is there a a different sense of pressure? Do you feel any external pressure now that you didn't used to feel? Yeah, I definitely do think that 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 must exist on some level, if I'm being honest. I don't know how much I'm like cognizant. I don't know if I'm like really in tune with it. But it must be there, of course. Like, there is something. You do get to a point maybe that, like, you start to wonder, like, okay, I've done this. Now what do I got to do or something? Like, how do I, like, top myself? Or, like, I think there can be, like, a healthy about kind of trying to go after things. I think it's just about trying to be aware of it. But I don't feel, like, I never feel, like, down in the dumps or something about, like, whatever. If I'm, like, I just think under capitalism, like, all of us are just, like, at the mercy of just constantly just not being able to like be okay with with not working (laughs) or what it means to be an artist and just make things without trying to like package them and sell them and get something in return for it like how do i exist as an artist just as an artist like i don't know i don't know what the question is to that yeah i mean maybe that bob dylan quote is where that comes into play what was it again an artist must always be in a state of becoming as long as you're in that realm, you'll sort of be okay. I mean, it's a tricky question because I also think that part of it is like as an artist is to present it to the public in some way. Like, does it exist if it's not being seen? I kind of feel like part of it is to show it or sell it or whatever it means. Because like so much for me is like, is that gratification of like connecting to people that makes it take on a different life. I also think art should be accessible for everybody, not just like monetarily, but also like in the sense of I did this, when I like donate murals to schools or kids or something, or like when I did this basketball court, I drew all over this basketball court for Kevin Durant, NBA basketball player, his charity foundation in Brooklyn. So it was for these students, these kids at PS315 in Brooklyn, in Midwood. And I drew all over this basketball court and it's like, it's an incredible court. And then I leave 
And I haven't been back since really. I mean, like one other time for like the, the unveiling for years. And it's like, but it's those students, it's those kids, it's their basketball court. It's the people on that street, that community, it's their basketball court. They have ownership over it. They have authorship over it. They get to say that I have the dopest basketball court you've ever seen. Just, it's got all this R over it. And it's like, it's theirs. It's not mine anymore in that sense. And there's something really special about that, that I think art is important the same way a movie or an album or your song or a book becomes about you and your story and how it pertains, relates to you. That is what I think really makes it kind of go above and beyond. Yeah. And that reminds me of something I read of yours in a quote about your personal story being your form of activism. I think that's, you could say the same thing about your artwork, which is so connected to your personal stories. It's you are able to contribute, as you said, and you're communicating, you're connecting with people. I mean, those are the bigger messages. And it's really been interesting chatting with you about this because when I first learned about you and your book, I was thinking about it through the context of a relationship. And through this time we spent together, I'm seeing like, wow, it's so much bigger than that. Like there's healing from traumas. There's expression, the creative side of that. There's the connection with people. There, It's all interwoven. And to think of your book as just the story about love is, is such yeah. a narrow view. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I do. I always say that like sharing your personal stories is a sort of activism, like sharing what's personal and hard for you connects you to other lonely people in the world and like that's what i'm always trying to do is just i want to talk to more lonely souls even the idea of what it means to be lonely i think a lot of times it's such bullshit it's like the stigma we put around it or how much we try to cover it up or run away from it like no i think loneliness it's different first of all you have to be able to know like loneliness is different than depression and it's different than sadness but being feeling lonely not even habitually like at times it's like there's such a beautiful rawness to that the way you really just like connect to like something more human inside of you and like what else would i want to do as a human than to feel more human <laughs> and i think that this idea of loneliness like sometimes i make my best work when i feel lonely you know it's just that rawness i feel more connected to the ground I feel my breath, I feel my feet on the ground, I feel how tender my heart might be, or I kind of like connect more deeply to the child inside of me who was scared and lonely or whatever. And that's what makes me me. And that's what makes each individual different. So I don't want to run away or patch up the loneliness. I just, I want to feel it. It's also funny too, because it's like being in a relationship. I was talking to my girlfriend about this recently. We were like, Sometimes in a relationship, you always want to like, you don't want your partner to be sad or to be lonely or to be whatever. And it's like, you want to like help them or you want to ask them. And sometimes in a relationship too, you got to be like, no, I need to be lonely tonight. Like, I just need to go have a sad dinner by myself at the bar or wherever and like read something or write something. And it's okay. Like, we don't need to fix it. We don't need to like, anyways, I don't know how that just came up, but Yeah. Wow. I mean, I'm blown away by that. It's interesting. Like in my head, I'm I'm often thinking like, where does the conversation go? And mm. you touching upon loneliness is just so rich and so just touching. And what an amazing way to wrap up the episode, I think. Like there's so many <laughs> more questions I have for you, but I feel like that's the end. Like All it's right. so sure? poetic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love, honestly, I mean... 
I'm so curious, naturally, but I love that ending on the note of loneliness. I don't think I've ever gotten there with someone before. And I Mm. love the way that you think through things. And I also wanted to encourage the listener to stay curious about you so that they'll Mm. go read your book and get to go on that journey, you know, and check out your social. Come on the journey. It's okay to not be okay. And you got to honor your loneliness, I think. And that's what I'm always trying to do. And sometimes reading books, it actually forces us to be lonely because very few of us read a book with somebody else, unless we're reading to a kid, I suppose. Reading a book is about being with yourself. And it's such a gift to give people that opportunity to be on their own and step away from social media for a bit. I mean, that's been huge for me. Yeah. As of the time we're recording this, I haven't used social media in about five weeks. And the amount of reading that has increased, I mean, like, I'm constantly reading books because I'm not spending all my time going through TikTok or something, you know? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And I'm so grateful because I'm- That's great. It's just a deeper journey. So yeah. for you to write a book that people want to like immerse themselves in this story, but also for you to deliver it in such an artistic way, it's just so cool. Yeah, I mean, it's an easy read too. It's a graphic memoir. So there's lots of art and charts and all kinds of things that kind of like- are used as catalysts to tell the story. It's also a book you can pick up in any page and you're just kind of like, it's its own singular kind of moment within the thing. So people have been writing me like, oh, I read the, I read it in five hours, like on my flight, you know, like, oh, I couldn't put it down. So you can get through it pretty quickly too. And definitely devour it. Go for it. Yeah. And how cool the format also is great for people that might not usually like to read. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> a lot of people say, like, I don't have time to read, but yet they're on social media or watching Netflix no, or whatever. Nothing sure. wrong with it. But to have a book like yours where you can just pick up little pieces and just yeah. immerse yourself in little moments, like sometimes people on the toilet, they want a book to read, like not to yeah. disparage your book at all. Yeah. But I'm like, that's a cool hey. You have five minutes to read a book. Like I'm not above it. Read it on the toilet. <laughs> Whatever. <Yeah. laughs> no, I, I think it's so beautiful. And the word gift just keeps coming to mind. I really think the work that you do is a gift to this world. And you've been a gift to me and the listener today for sharing your story. So rawly and just all the ramblings and the moments, the things that you've touched upon, you've shared so much wisdom and insight. And oh, thank you for having me. It's an beautiful honor. to witness. Yeah. So for the listener, I will link to Timothy's wonderful book in the description so you can get a copy of it. And there's a full transcript. So if you want to go back and see his words of wisdom, you can check it out on the website, wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com, where you'll find the links, you'll find the quotes, you'll find the transcript. You can go back and all those awesome quotes that you shared, Timothy, too, from Bob Dylan and a few others. I love that. So those are all included in one place for anyone who might want to revisit it (laughs) and uh, hope you enjoy it. Thanks, Timothy, for being here today. Thank you. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. 